0: you're listening to The Real World, a podcast by David Jones Bold, the Real Estate Law Specialists. Today I'm joined by DJB partner, environmental and planning specialist Johanna Weber.
1: Hi Lizzie, how are you?
0: Yeah, very good, thank you. Good. So I guess just to kind of get started on the podcast today, um, we all know you really well here at DJB, um, but it'd be good to introduce you to our listeners.
1: Yes. Thanks, Lizzie. Um, As you said, I'm a planning and environmental lawyer, and I've been doing that for about 18 years, um, starting in Australia and then from 2008 onwards here in the UK. And I've worked in-house for local authorities uh, and various city law firms. And now I have the pleasure of joining you at DJB.
0: Um, So we're here to talk today off the back of um, a webinar you appeared on today with the voice of authority, which was discussing the right to regenerate. Um, Now the right to regenerate is a proposal that was announced in January of this year 2021 the kind of purpose being um, to assist with turning derelict buildings into homes and community assets. Can you just in a few words just explain to me and to the listeners what the right to regenerate is, what it's kind of replacing and what it's kind of aiming to do?
1: Yes sure so this Right's actually been around for, for a long time, since since the 80s, and it's had three, so far two. This will be the third different uh, branding, if you like. It started out as the right to reclaim, then it was changed to the right to contest, and now we're looking at it as the right to regenerate. But fundamentally, it's the same proposition, which is a mechanism by which private uh, citizens or organisations can compel a local authority or other public body to dispose of underutilized uh, assets in its portfolio. So it's primarily aimed at at derelict buildings and uh, neglected buildings and other um, assets which either have been out of use for a long time or have no uh, prospects for for any use coming forward. So this particular consultation was, like I said, a a bit of a, a a up of that existing right and some adding in of some detail and I do think that the detail being added is is important to discuss and I think that there potentially could be some some new angles to this right that we haven't seen before that could make it a little bit more attractive.
0: Okay so you mentioned obviously the previous right to contest how well utilized was that and what were the kind of limitations that that had that maybe this new right to regenerate is going to address?
1: Yeah, see, it was very poorly utilised um, in the government's own statistics. and its consultation, were that 192 applications have been been made um, since since 2014, and only one of those was successful. So it's had a pretty pretty poor uh, strike rate, and I think there are a couple of reasons for that. I think one of them is is simply lack of detail around how the right is supposed to work. Um, you know what what kind of land is, is, is suitable? How underutilized does it has to, have to be? What does underutilized mean? Um, and then there's the other issue, which is that the local or public body uh, can simply um, state that it has a purpose for that land um, and that's enough to trump the application, but there's no uh, requirement for any detail beyond that. And there's no requirement to prove um, the likelihood or possibility of, of that use coming forward. Uh, It's simply an arbitrary uh, rebuff. So I think that puts a lot of prospective uh, applications off because of that lack of process and lack of clarity and lack of transparency.
0: Okay, so you mentioned obviously the success rate of um, the previous right to contest. How do you think applications going forward can be better engineered towards success?
1: Yeah, I think that... It will certainly help to have more of a framework around the criteria um, for a successful application. One of the questions of the consultation is uh, whether there should be a definition of of unused or underutilised land and I think that this is key really. I think prospective applicants need to know um, exactly which properties are, are potentially going to be available under this process uh, and what the obstacles or hurdles will be from the local authority side. Um, And because that hasn't been articulated so far, it's been a a wild stab in the dark for for applicants. So certainly a definition of unused or underutilized uh, as a starting point will, will help. The other aspect that I think will be very useful is the collection of of data around these applications and the utilization of of those applications as intelligence uh, for those assets that might be suitable for this kind of process. Not all of them will. Some of them will sit within areas that are identified for large scale regeneration uh, and simply won't be be suitable. But there will be smaller properties in fringe areas uh, where there's simply no other viable option to, to bring them forward. Um, and in this, in those cases, I think that th- this process can help to inform, say, even the compilation of a, of a register of suitable uh, s- suitable sites where the local authority would be willing to enter into uh, into discussions. So I think, um, ultimately, that's what this process should be about is is identifying suitable properties, uh, identifying suitable parties and starting the discussion.
0: Okay, and and so in terms of local authorities then, this new right to regenerate is putting more emphasis on them, I guess, justifying the use of this land. And that could be, if I'm right, either temporary uses or longer term or strategic uses. So what is the kind of benefit of that? And what is the dangers or the potential difficulties this is going to cause for local authorities, do you think?
1: I think the the main issue for local authorities... Uh, will be potential interference with larger regeneration schemes and strategic development plans. Um, uh, like I said before, the uh, potential location of of a derelict property in a wider site, um, if it is subject to this process, could potentially hold up planning and and strategic planning f- for a much a much larger project they take a long time to come forward. Strategic developments and master plans take many years, um, in some cases, to to bring forward. Um, You've got to have allocations in local plans, and then you've got to identify development partners and funding and then go through to detail planning. Um, And these are all issues that local authorities having to to grapple with um, in terms of their regeneration. So um, having a a right to, to regenerate pop up on one of these sites could be uh, quite disruptive, but but on the other hand, I think that the local authorities do need to bear in mind that there is a need to make better use of of certain assets. Some of them are underutilized. Some of them are ripe for for development opportunity, and some of them are, are, sit within very close uh, community areas where people very much would like the opportunity to take control of those pockets um, for for the betterment of of themselves, and they know arguably better than anyone what the best use is to to, to put that asset to. And and if that's the way it's going to be best utilised, then that should be an important factor that the local authority is willing to contemplate, even if it means they don't necessarily get market value, they might be getting some other form of value that needs to be weighed up in that mix. I think um, there are very straitjackets on local authority about how it must dispose of its assets and a loosening of that, um, I think is is also required in this context.
0: Okay, I'll come back to your point on market value. Um, But just quickly, following on from the point on local authorities and the the new kind of pressures this may or may not put on them. um, In response to the consultation, many local authorities expressed concern about how they were going to retain the social and community benefits of the land. Do you think this is a justified concern?
1: I think it's it's possibly overstated. I think there are lots of tools that local authorities have uh, to maintain social um, benefits for you know economic, environmental, social well-being benefits. You see them used all the time in 106 agreements, and similarly, there are uh, restrictive covenants and other planning and contractual uh, tools available. Uh, to local authorities to make sure that either, say, a development isn't developed for something else, uh, to say that it's not disposed of or or doesn't doesn't change hands without without consent of the local authority, or simply to require that there's uh, you know the provision of of certain on-site services by whoever acquires that land. So, you know, I I, I think that um, local authorities are more than equipped enough to make sure that they can turn those public assets into uh, continuing assets of of public benefit, um, you know, without fear of of it being lost forever, so to speak, uh, to to, to private, private sector.
0: Okay, and then just circling back to the market value, which is what is outlined in the proposal, Um, And concerns that may be raised around it being market value at the expense of social value, and it not taking into consideration broader best value considerations. Do you want to speak about that for a moment?
1: Yeah, I think that it's important to bear in mind, the whole point of this process, which is bringing derelict property back into use. And looking at that in purely economic terms, is almost it's self-defeating because the whole reason that that property is probably derelict or underused is because it's not economically feasible to do anything with it. So using um, economic arguments, purely judging something on its economic potential um, when it's already derelict is, uh, like I said, I I think rather self-defeating. You've got to look at this in terms of the benefit of bringing an underused property back into use, bringing a derelict property back into use. The, the improvements to the local area, um, and the environmental and, and social wellbeing aspects uh, of that. Um, so I think there should be a, a special case for lenience in the use of this right, and in circumstances where this right is is being sought, there should be some recognition of that of that social value or that that community value. um, And the fact that a service is being done to the community by bringing these eyesores back into use.
0: So do you think the term economic um, is isolating this policy from other agendas such as sustainability, for example?
1: Yeah, in this in this case, I think I do. Um, I think that, uh, like I said, purely looking at this in economic terms, means that you're missing out on various other benefits um, under under national national policy, you know, various other improvements that this type of regeneration might bring um, that might very much outweigh economic concerns. And um, for example, you know, the need for, for sustainable development, the need for um, you know local local uh, services, community uses, um, community housing. You know, this may not be the, the greatest economic uh, return for the local authority, but it has other other powers. It has other duties in terms of the wellbeing of its local area, and there are national planning policies uh, to 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 support that. And that is a balancing exercise at the end of the day. Um, and you know, in the, in this case, should should the economic uh, return weigh less in that balance? I think it should.
0: Okay, thank you for that. So, to bring this back to to kind of more of a practical point, then, what do you feel is required to make this work?
1: I think, in order to make this much more useful than it has been previously, there does need to be a lot more detail around the terms that are being used, and and particularly, like I said, what does underused mean? What does underutilised mean? you know should there be a moratorium period on a local authority if they if they claim they have a use should there be a moratorium period on them to demonstrate that or to bring it forward or should there be um, a, a, a test of the likelihood or possibility of their uh, their claimed alternative use coming coming forward and just as equally if not more important is uh, that that information is is harvested and kept up to date, such that if two or three years go past, and still nothing's happened with that use, that the data should be able to be uh, drawn back upon by a, a prospective applicant to say, nothing's happened with this, with this land, I'm going to put in another application. Um, there's very little, if, if any, evidence to demonstrate what has happened with the 191 unsuccessful applications where there was another use. Um, be very interesting to know if that 191 other uses actually came forward and if anyone went back to asking the question again. So I think these things do take time to play out, but we can only make use of um, this process if we can collect the data from it and revisit it uh, as as, as and when um, the situation might be a bit clearer.
0: So the the demographic most likely to use this right is going to be community groups. Do you think... There is something that can be down, done, or what more can be done to help them realise the benefits of it.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think we've we've got to encourage community groups to use this. Um, I think I, I might have said before that larger private developers, uh, uh, this is not going to be an avenue um, for them. There's not enough certainty in the process, um, and also it's uh, it doesn't give them the the the, the control. Um, over timescales that they need to have in order to deliver large housing projects. Smaller developers, you know, yes, uh, of more interest to them, but again they need to have a timeline for a supply of sites to deliver those sites in order to, to, to be profitable. Um, so you, I think really looking at, at community groups being the, the best candidates for, for this right, and the, I think local authorities need to, to do a bit more to encourage those conversations and encourage them to come forward um, and, and you know, and to, to trust them a bit more. I think um, th- there's certainly an assumption that, um, you know, co- community-based groups don't have uh, the skills and expertise um, and the capability uh, to, to deliver on this kind of project. And that may be the case, but I think given more support and given more communication um, from from the local authority. Uh, this could become something that is as, as familiar to a community group as, say, a neighbourhood plan now is. Uh, and, and that used to be a completely new um, and different uh, area, which a lot of people expected would be beyond the, the realms of community groups to, to grapple with. But the take up of them has been quite good. And there are now quite a few neighbourhood plans that are functioning very well. So I think you you have to give community groups the benefit of the doubt with this um, and give them the chance to come forward and put forward proposals, recognise the benefit that they bring in terms of improving those those sites and that that is a value in itself, um, not to purely judge it on the economic return to the local authority, um, but to work with them more more collaboratively um, and even uh, to encourage them to collaborate with with partners in the private sector. I think there have to be different, different stakeholders all working together uh, to, to fully realise the, the potential of, of this right.
0: Okay, to kind of round off the conversation then, do you envisage that this incarnation of the right could improve on its predecessors?
1: Yeah, you know, I'm hopeful. Um, I, I'm gonna say that it certainly has some features to it that Will be more useful than than the previous right, and uh, the the government I think is certainly on the right track. It's it's a laudable aim and a very necessary I think um, uh, function to be able to hold local authorities and public bodies to account for assets that they that they neglect um, or don't bring forward in a timely manner for, for whatever reason that may be. Um, and this right certainly has uh, some extra features that will provide more incentive for local authorities to respond to this process and to engage in it more. I suppose the important thing is that uh, it encourages more dialogue than than has been done in the past. And uh, certainly the the feature of having a first right of of refusal uh, is in itself um, possibly a very significant game changer uh, because previously the, the, the property was simply sold on the open market. Whereas this is uh, almost like an asset of community value type mechanism um, where the uh, applicant gets gets the first right to go away and put together uh, a, a proposal uh, f- for a feasible uh, disposal or acquisition. So I you know I, I think there are certainly attractions to trying this. It may not be as successful as the government want it to be. Um, but it might be more successful, in which case that's still a good thing. <laughs> it wouldn't be hard to be more successful um, than the last right, but it encourages more conversations at local levels about assets. It encourages more uh, community interest in, in local regeneration. And I think as overall as part of regenerating and getting best use out of our assets. We have to have tools that cater to the very, very small scale and tools to that are very, very large. And in so far as a very small scale tool goes, um, this could be a very important one if it starts starts those communi- uh, conversations, opens up communications, sets out clearer criteria with the local authority um, a, as to what underuse means and what their plans uh, need to be and allows path path forward for more collaboration where it's needed.
0: Okay, great. I think collaboration, communication, opening dialogues is a nice way to end. Um, So we'll end on that one. But thanks for that, Johanna. That's been really interesting.
1: Great. Thank you very much.
0: You've been listening to The Real World, a podcast by David Jones Bold. We look forward to seeing you in our next episode.